It has been called the pearl of the parables, for it is the most valuable story Jesus ever created. Charles Dickens, the great English author, has called it the greatest story ever told. Some say it's the finest short story in literature. Another poet, Robert Bridges, has judged it as a flawless piece of art. This story here has inspired the pen of Rembrandt, the music of W.C., and the poetry of John Macefield. George Buttrick, one of the greatest preachers of recent past, has said the story of the prodigal son captures the essence of the Christian faith. I mean, it's so basic that a child can grasp its truth, and yet it's deceptively complex as we return to it again and again to draw out the richness of the meaning. Besides the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is likely the most well-known. Yet why do we know it as the parable of the prodigal son? The word prodigal is not in the story anywhere. The word prodigal means wasteful or a person who is senselessly, extravagantly self-indulgent. And the younger son, as we're going to see, is the classic illustration of wasting your life. And so the word fits quite well. And that is why this title has lasted so long. But I wonder if we would, it would be more appropriate to call this story the parable of the loving father. I have a, a, a minor issue with calling it the parable of the, of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. I believe that it's a great mistake to think that this is a story of one son. It's a story of two sons. Or as we're going to see in this sermon series for Christmas, it's a story of a father and three sons. You say, wait a minute, Pastor. I think you meant to say two sons. There's the rebellious son and and there's the religious son. I only count two. And if we read 15 verse 11, it says there was a man who had two sons. But I want us to look at three sons because there are three sons in Luke 15. There's the outwardly rebellious son. There's the inwardly rebellious religious son. And then there's the son who's telling the story. Jesus, God's loved son who died for our rebellion. Without looking at this third son, this story is pointless. And that is what led me to choose this particular passage for the Christmas season. We're going to take a short break from our time in the book of James to call us to come home for Christmas to the greatest gift exchange. Why Luke 15? Why particularly this story of two lost sons for a Christmas series? Well, it's more than just to think outside the box. This story sums up the central message of the whole Bible, specifically the whole New Testament. It is the gospel in a nutshell. If you truly understand this story of the father, the, older, the younger son, and the older brother, you begin to grasp the central thrust of Jesus and the main emphasis of the New Testament. In one story, it emphasizes why Jesus had to come. That's why I landed here. 
And so look with me at Luke 15. I hope your Bibles are still open to Luke 15. The story of the two lost sons begins in verse 11, but the key to understanding the story is found at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 and 2. And really, we need to go back to the very last line of chapter 14. Remember, there are no chapter breaks when this was written. The very last line of chapter 14, verse 35. I want you to notice that with me. Chapter 14, verse 35. The last line that is there, it says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, pay close attention to what I am saying. Lock in. Listen. And if you have ears to hear, you really care about what this says, you'll get it. If you don't care, then you won't get it. Now, who is Jesus' primary audience? Who's gathered around him when he's telling these parables? Well, chapter, uh, chapter 15 answers that. Look at verses 1 and 2. Follow along. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. We have two groups of people. They're the tax collectors and the sinners. And then they're the Pharisees and the scribes or the teachers of the law. And the accusation of the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 2 is that Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. And I ask myself, when is the last time someone accused me of that? Have you ever been accused, follower of Jesus Christ, of welcoming or receiving sinners and eating with them? The word welcoming, by the way, here, it means more than passively welcoming sinners as they come into your life. The meaning of welcoming, some translations have receiving. It's stronger than that, for it means eagerly looking for sinners, eagerly awaiting their coming. Christ, whose whose birth we celebrate, came for the purpose of seeking sinners. That's good news for sinners. And so the religious leaders accused Jesus of looking for sinners, hanging out with sinners. And so response to their muttering, which is just this monotone, mm, that's what muttering kind of means, kind of describes them. They just kind of, you know, people mutter. I don't really say much. Jesus is going to tell some, some stories here in response to, to their muttering. He tells five parables in a row. The story of the two lost sons is the third of the five parables. And leading up to the one of the greatest stories ever told, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep in verses 3 through 7, in which the shepherd went out in an all-out search for the one sheep that was lost. All the men gathered there would get that story. And then in verses 8 through 10, Jesus tells the story of the woman who only had 10 coins, but loses one of those coins, and so she could not rest until she found it. She looked and she looked and she looked for that which was lost, because that which was lost was very valuable to her. And all the women standing there would certainly relate to that situation. So Jesus explains what was really happening when he welcomed sinners. Jesus is telling the Pharisees and the scribes that not only did he receive sinners when they showed up at his doorstep, he went after them. He looked for them. 
And so the three parables in Luke 15 have certain threads that run through them. It is clear that God has a lost and found department. And each of these three parables in Luke 15, something valuable and of worth is lost, first of all. Secondly, that which is lost is recovered. And thirdly, retrievals result in rejoicing. A lost and found sheep and a party. A lost and found coin and a party. A lost and found son and a party. And by the end of these three stories, it is crystal clear that Jesus welcomes sinners because he is the incarnation of God's love and grace that pursues the loss. Luke 15 directs us to Christ's mission in the world. Jesus was born for the purpose of seeking and finding the lost. And if he didn't go physically after them, he eagerly awaited their coming home. And that brings us to the story of a son who chose to run away from his family. And we can all identify with this story, for it's all about broken relationships. Who here doesn't know about broken relationships? So let's look at the parable of the two lost sons. What I hope to do with this story in, the, in, in these weeks and through this month is, first of all, this morning, we're going to look at the younger son. And then next week, we're going to zero in on grace through the eyes of the father. And then the third week, we're going to look at the older son. And on the Sunday, a few days before Christmas, we'll look at the third son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God, who's telling the story. Now, they're all going to kind of interweave here. There's going to be some overlap each week of the characters in the story, for to talk about one character is to do in relationship to the other members of the family. And so for this morning, our three headings will be this. First of all, a son sick of home, heading number one, a son sick of home. Two, a son homesick, a son homesick. And then third, a son returns home. Those are our three headings for this morning, pretty straightforward. First of all, a son sick of home. Now, every child at one time or another thinks, a, thinks that a better set of parents, <laughs> or none at all, is preferred. Max Lucado tells of the time he took his family to the bicycle store to purchase a, a bike for his five-year-old daughter, Jenna. She picked out the shiny bike with a banana seat and training wheels, and, and Andrea, the three-year-old, decided she wanted a bike just like her sister. Max explained to to Andrea that she was much too young. He told her that that she was still having trouble with a tricycle and it was too small for for a two-wheeler. Well, she still wanted a bike like her sister. He tried to tell her that a big bike would bring her more pain than pleasure, more scrapes than thrills, and, and she turned her head and said nothing. And finally, Max Locato, the dad, sighed, and he said this time that her daddy knew best. What was her response? She screamed it loud enough for everyone in the store to hear. She said, then I want a new daddy. (laughs) Know the feeling? Know the feeling? Now, we don't know what was going on in the mind of the younger son here. He didn't want just a new daddy. He didn't want any daddy at all. But for one reason or another, he wanted to be free from all family responsibilities, to be independent. He wanted out. And it says in verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property 
between them. Now, the only way, the only way a son could claim his inheritance was on the death of his father. Ken Bailey comments on the startling fact that in all of Middle Eastern literature from ancient times to the present, there's no case of any son, older or younger, asking for his inheritance from a father who is still in good health, except in this parable. Jesus knew how to grab the attention of his listeners. And so this son here, in asking for his inheritance before his dad passed away, was in essence saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were out of the way so I could start a new life on my own. It is to say, I want your stuff. I don't want you. How might that be a commentary on many people today? I want God's gifts, but I really don't want God. Quite a slap in the face of the Father. What is surprising about this story, at this point anyway, is that the Father goes along with the Son's request. He didn't have to. And most of the hearers would have been sympathetic if the father refused the son's request. I mean, he had no right to it while the dad was still alive. Yet the father agrees to give the son an early inheritance. He says, here you go, son, take it, run, I'm not stopping you. But what a rejection. The father endures rejected love. The father endures rejected love. How do you typically respond to rejection? I won't ever let you hurt me again. I'm going to put up these walls. I will never get close to you or anyone else again. No way. I will not be hurt. Self-protection in some form is how we often handle rejection. But the father here maintains his love for his son who had rejected him, to put it mildly. And so the son takes his inheritance, his property, his animals, houses, buildings, and in essence, he cashes it all in. The sense here is that he turns all of that into cash. And verse 13 shows us the son's intentions behind his request. Notice what it says here, verse 13. Not long after that, he got his inheritance. He had this plan in place. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off to New York City. Well, it says in a distant country, but, you know, it was really New York City. I read that over 2,000 young people who run away from home go to New York City every single month seeking fame and fortune. It's an incredible number. Even half of that would be an incredible number. 2,000? This younger son had been thinking about this for a while because he had a plan in place to run from home after receiving the inheritance and that his intention was not to return. He wasn't just going on a mini vacation for who takes everything they have if they plan to return. Now, you may wonder sometimes when you're packing your car for a vacation, if someone in the family's planning on this being a one-way trip <laughs> with all the stuff you're putting in. This son got his money, he gathered all his things, and he couldn't wait to leave. He's not coming back. 
He couldn't get, wait to get out of his home. I don't like your rules. I don't believe what you believe. I'm out of here. I am sick of home. Young person, have you ever had that thought? When I am old enough, when I'm 18, I am out of here. I can't wait to get out of this house. Rules. I can do better without them. It's safe to say that there's someone here this morning who's here because of some pressure from mom or dad or some pressure from a spouse or some pressure from a girlfriend or boyfriend to be here. I mean, you're here on the outside, but your heart is somewhere else. Perhaps you're even considering this morning saying, I am done. Perhaps you're about to run. So the son runs away from home feeling free. And what starts out in happiness ends in utter heartache. Kind of like one who jumps out of a plane may feel free until he realizes he doesn't have a parachute. Running from home, running from God may at first feel free. Oh, but how it ends up is in misery and heartache. He didn't anticipate losing all he had on women and wild living, but he did. The end of verse 13 says that he squandered his wealth and wild living. And the brother's older brother's take on it later says he squandered it with prostitutes. The word squandered means scattered in various directions. I'm going to live over here. I'm going to spend all my money over here. Off I go. All in different directions. That's what squandered means. It's to live in a wild and reckless manner. And the net result of his going from one party to the next and living it up is that he spent everything he had. And to make matters worse, there was a famine in the land. And I asked, where did this famine come from? Hmm, no coincidence. His misery not only came from within, but from without. Look at verse 14. It says, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. Now catch these words. And he began to be in need. And he began to be in need. The one thing that keeps so many people from the heavenly father is that they see no need. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I have it. But it is at that moment when our fine world is rattled. It's at that moment when our our fine world is rattled by a doctor's report or or our fine world is rattled by a a death of a loved one or or a relational fallout or a near-death experience that there is an opportunity to return home. But it begins at a felt need. Yet how many of those moments, be honest, how many of those moments have passed by and it grabs you for a time, but then you go back to same old, same old. I'm all sad again. I got it. He began to be in need. And this freedom, like a freshman in college, was all too much for him. And soon his fun ran out because his money ran out. We're talking about a young man who hit rock bottom. Or did he? 
He's still not ready to go home. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? When something happens to us that, that really should get our attention, we still try and manage the outcome. We still try and make life work without God, even when it gets real bad. Isn't it amazing? Verse 15 tells us, he's not ready to go home yet. Verse 15 tells us that he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Now, these are interesting words that said here in verse 15, because the words here suggest that he attached himself to this man. He hired himself out to a citizen. He attached himself to this man. Wherever this man went, he went. And me and my shadow kind of thing. I'm right here. Don't stop too quickly. I'm going to bump into you. I've attached myself to you. That's the idea. It's a description of those who try and fill the void in their souls with something or someone other than God. See, we are created by God and for God. We were made to be filled by him. You break your attachment to God, you're going to replace it with something or someone else. It may be drugs. It may be alcohol. It may be sex. It may be job. It may be sports. It may be a hobby. It may be video games. It may be some TV that you just love to sit by. It may be that house on the lake. It may be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It may be a spouse. It can even be a church. You attach yourself to it. And on and on the list goes. And some of the things we attach ourselves to may be obviously wrong, but some of the things apparently at first pass are good. But God wants us to attach ourselves The younger son still doesn't quite get it. He's trying to fix things on his own. It only gets worse if he finds himself working at a pig farm. Now, there's some humor here. A Jewish boy is living in a Gentile city working with pigs. Ah, It's supposed to get that reaction. You see the irony? His helplessness led to his humiliation. A son sick of home now becomes a son who is homesick. And verse 16 says, He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. And these are very sad words right here. But no one gave him anything. Did you catch that? No one gave him anything. Compare that sentence to the one at the beginning of verse 14. When he had spent everything... No one gave him anything. When he had spent everything, no one gave him anything. And I asked, where are all his friends now? I mean, I can just see him prior to this buying everyone a round of drinks. I can see him cutting in when someone else is about to pay and say, hey, I've got this. Uh, Money's no object with me. I can see him kind of just throwing his money around to make sure everyone's having a good time. I can see all the party throwers welcoming him in. But when he had spent everything, no one gave him anything. As the song goes, nobody knows you when you're down and out. In your pocket, not one penny. And as for friends, you don't have any. No one knows you when you're down and out. He calls the people on his contact list and no one answers his call. No one replies to his text. No one replies to his emails. No one gave him anything. Here is a man who is alone. 
Glenn Wolf died alone in Los Angeles at the age of 88. No one came to claim his body, and so the city paid to have him buried in an unmarked grave. This is sad, but not unusual. It happens all too often in large cities where people tend to live disenfranchised lives. But Glenn's situation was unique, however, because he was no ordinary man. He held the world record. The Guinness Book listed him as the most married man. I don't think you want that record. 29 marriages to his credit. You don't want that many marriages. This means 29 times he was asked, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, forsaking all others? Do you pledge yourself only to her so as long as you both shall live? And 29 times Glenn Wolf said, I do. But it never quite worked out that way. He left behind several children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, a number of living ex-wives and innumerable ex-in-laws, as you can imagine. And still he died alone. He spent his entire adult life looking for something he apparently never found, and he died alone. See, the fact is, if we look for ultimate fulfillment in marriage, if we look for ultimate fulfillment in in, in romance or friendships or family, we will never be satisfied. As important as these relationships are, they cannot take the place of the ultimate relationship for which we have been created. Many die each year surrounded by millions of people, yet not a single person seems to know or care when you die. And I don't know about you, that just makes my heart sick, grips my heart when I consider that. The only thing worse than that is to die unknown by God. To be cut off from God is worse than if you died known by hundreds or thousands of others. And while we may experience aloneness at the parties we attend, as we're spending all of our money, as we jump from one quick fix to another looking for happiness, the real aloneness is our broken fellowship with God the Father. What is the major issue this son must face? What is the the real breakdown in this story? It is of one boy whose relationship with his father is severed because he turned his back on his dad. He's no victim. He has no one to blame but himself. He was a boy who made bad decisions. And he lost his money. He lost his freedom. He lost all self-respect. He had no friends. He thought he bought freedom, but instead he bought bondage. Now, what is extremely helpful about this parable is that not only does it spell out for us the misery of lostness, but also what it looks like to come home what it looks like to come home. Look at verse 17. It is the turning point in this young man's life. Coming home must begin here, loved ones, or else it will be short-lived. The beginning of verse 17 says, when he came to his senses. When he came to his senses. Literally, came to himself. Came to his senses. We sang it earlier. I have come to the end of me. What does it look like when a person finally comes to himself? It is to be broken over our sin. It is to see the devastating results of our personal choices. It is to see the truth for what it is. It's to realize that life is not working as we planned. It's to gain insight into the mess you're in and that you have no one to blame but yourself. 
What does it mean to come to our senses? It is to acknowledge that you are alone, are responsible for the choices that you have made. And listen, if you're still making excuses and explaining what you did and why you did it, then you are not broken. Brokenness. If you're not able to see your sin before the God of heaven, then you're not broken. To come to our senses and to be broken is to then throw ourselves at the feet of God's mercy. Hear this. Brokenness needs to be a regular part of our lives. Not a one-time thing. It's to be broken over our sin before a holy God that our relationship with God is not right and that should bother us. And then we throw ourselves at the feet of God's mercy. We can't demand anything of God. We can't even try and manage the consequences. We have to deal with the consequences, yes, but don't try and manage them. We can only fall before God and ask for mercy. And that's what we start to see next. The younger son comes up with a plan. And talking to himself, he says in verse 17, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And talking to himself, he repeats the word father three times. What if he didn't have a father to return to? The son here is not suggesting that his father take him back as a hired worker who's then obligated to pay wages. That misses the point. The son here, and what he says here, is aware of how generous his father is, and that if he were to only have the crumbs that fall from the father's table, it would be more satisfying than what he's tasted in the world. That's what he's saying. He realizes that he traded the blessings of his father for the momentary pleasures of sin. So he's willing to live as one of his father's hired men. The son figured he had no right to expect to be treated like a son, And you know what? It would be very possible in that day for that son who left home like that, that son who took his inheritance wishing his dad was dead, it would be very likely in that culture that he was considered dead to the family and to the community. So all he can hope for from his perspective is to work for his dad for free and pay his father back, make restitution, get some of the blessings. In his eyes, that's his best scenario. He never expected what would happen next. Not in a million years. And verse 20 says, so he got up. He got up and he went to his father. A boy who was sick of home became homesick, so returned home. A son returns home. What if he had a father to return to, but would treat him as his sins deserve? What if there was no solution to sin? What if there was no heavenly father? What we see the father do next is absolutely radical. And as we're going to zero in on next week, we can be reconciled to a watching, waiting, and seeking gods. I want to leave you with three points of application for this morning quickly. Three points. Three points of application. First of all, there are times... There are times that God in his grace lets us exhaust ourselves. Did you hear that? There are times that God in his grace lets us exhaust ourselves. 
You may not find, at first pass see grace in what happens to the son and losing everything, but it is grace. Why? Why would God in his grace let us exhaust ourselves? Because it's there that we sense our need for him. It's there we cried out, Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you. Every hour I need you. And I'm figuring God's just doing that in my life to just keep getting my point where I exhaust myself so that I know that I need him more. I'm kind of tired of it at times, to be quite honest with you. But it's where God wants us. That is his grace. That is his grace. Why? It can lead us to our return home. Secondly, secondly, whatever issues we may have on the horizontal level, it is the broken relationship on the vertical plane that must be fixed. Whatever issues we may have on the horizontal level, it is the broken relationship on the vertical plane that must be fixed. The son came to his senses because of his financial and physical condition, but that alone doesn't explain his breaking point. The breaking point was a severed relationship with his father. And God can use all kinds of things in our world to get our attention, to wake us up until we feel the loss of a broken relationship with God. We will only clean up our life a little, organize this and manage that. Whatever relationship, relational problems we have, and may have created through our bad choices. It's the broken relationship with God who created us that must be addressed. And thirdly, there's a third point of application. The more convinced we are that God loves us as the Bible says, the more convinced we are that God loves us as the Bible says, we will run to him and not from him. The more convinced we are that the God loves us, as the Bible says, we will run to him and not from him. This is a story, as we're going to see even more so next week, of scandalous, matchless, glorious grace. It's meant to leave us blown away by his grace. And the more we understand this grace, the more we will want to run to God rather than run from God. And so I ask you, have you chosen your own path? Maybe in just some area of your life? Have you forsaken God and and all his provisions that he's given to you? Have you said, I want your stuff, God, but I don't really want you? You can have all of this, but not this? Will Will you repent of that? Will you repent of that? Will you admit your rejection of his love? Will you be honest as to how your choices have been an offense to God and his church? Will you answer the call to come home? For God the Father stands waiting, longing for you to return. The invitation's out. Most of us know in this room, there's something just not right here. I got to clean it up a little bit. I can get right with God. Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story entitled The Capital of the Worlds. You might be familiar with it. The story takes place in Spain. A father decides to reconcile with his son who had run off to Madrid. So he takes out this ad in the newspaper. It says, Peco, meet me at the Hotel Montana noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. He takes his ad out. He says, Peco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Now, you need to realize, Peco is a very common name in Spain. When the father goes to the hotel, 
he finds 800 young men in the square waiting to be reconciled to their fathers. 800. Is there a need here this morning? Yes. The invitation goes out. Meet me, God says. All is forgiven. The light is on. I want to enjoy fellowship with you. If you've walked away from God or you've walked away from the God who endures your rejected love, you can come home this Christmas. And when you do, you'll be part of the greatest gift exchange ever. You'll come in brokenness. You know what you experience? Wholeness. You come and you give him your sin and you experience forgiveness. Because God is in the business of restoring relationships that are broken. That's why he came. He came to bring reconciliation to your broken relationship with God, the perfect father. Next week, we'll pick it up with grace through the eyes of the father. Let's pray. Lord, you show us time and time again that we cannot do it on our own and you allow us to exhaust ourselves. So we quit trying to make life work without you. And instead, come to you in all brokenness and say, Lord, I need you. Not just once in a while. Not just to get through this big deal right now. I need you every single God, may that be the prayer of our hearts. May we see in this very familiar story, this young son, what needs to be done in our own life of anything that might be broken between you and me, between you and us. As you stand waiting, watching, longing for us to enjoy rich communion with you. Speak to us continually from this parable this week, I pray in Jesus' name.